Hey everyone, and thank you for joining me for another episode of Gathering Ground. I'm Mary Morton, president of Morton Group LLC, a national consulting firm based in Chicago. A few weeks ago, I had an opportunity to speak with Tanika Johnson. Tanika has turned her own experiences of growing up in Chicago into art, and it's art that is changing our city for the better. Tanika's unique work is all about creating ways to bridge our city's historically rampant racial and economic divides. Between the MAP twins and the folded MAP projects, Tanika's work explores creating connections between individuals who live on the same street in vastly different neighborhoods. And there's a nuanced look at the historical and systemic issues that deprived many Black homeowners of their dreams in the mid-20th century. But this is really just the beginning of her very impressive work. It explores the historical aspects of segregation and its impact on the city's intersectional divisions. Her projects serve as a platform to challenge stereotypes and foster understanding to illuminate the systemic issues of the past and work towards bridging current divides. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Tanika Johnson, facilitator, community advocate, and creator of the Folded Map Project. So welcome to Gathering Ground, Tanika. <laughs> Hi, thank you for having me. I'm so happy to be here with you. It's lovely to see you. And I just want to say that uh, we met uh, in 2019 when you mm -hmm. came to my home to do a portrait of me for mm -hmm. the yes. uh, anniversary for the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights. And I thought, to somebody I need to stay in touch with. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, you're so sweet. <laughs> and, and there's so many things that have happened since I, I met you. So before we get to all that, there's a lot of exciting things going on. Let's start, and we always like to start this way, to give our listeners some sense of how did you get here, right? Um, give us a little bit of your background uh, and, and the work that you're doing now. Um, that's, yeah, I'd love to hear about that. And, and just to give our, our listeners some context for who you are. Yes. Um, so it's funny that you, uh, asked the question of like my background and, and, and what got me to creating this like artistic, weird, sociological mapping project. Um, and, and really it's, it's a project that only a Chicagoan, could have done a Chicagoan that was born here, lived here, and never moved anywhere else. Okay, so that's 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 me. It's <laughs> both of us. <laughs> I know Chicago like the back of my hand. Um, so uh, the the origin of the project really kind of started as observations that I had um, growing up on my daily commute to high school because I, I grew up um, and still live in, in Inglewood. And, you know, that's on Chicago's South Side. And the high school that I went to was Lane Tech, which is on Chicago's far north side. And so that was a 15 mile commute every day, starting at the age of 13 years old. Um, and what I have to tell uh, people, especially anyone younger than myself, I have to tell them that was in 1993 when there was no GPS. Okay. There was no cell phone. So you had to know addresses. You had to memorize and understand that Chicago is on a grid map. And so, you know, after commuting every day, 
that's when I started to notice how different my neighborhood looked compared to the neighborhood my high school was in. And then also, um, you know, going to Lane Tech, um, especially in the 90s, it was extremely diverse, more so than what it is now. And it's the largest uh, school in Chicago, 4,000 students. And so I was really just kind of like plucked out of my predominantly black South Side neighborhood and dropped into this whole new world of what Chicago really is, which was so many nationalities, so many, like all of the races, all of the nationalities. And I was just like, oh my God, this is what Chicago is. And, you know, the friendships I I created, the lifelong friendships across race, across geography, um, really enlightened me to how Chicago is segregated and how segregation prevents you from, potentially prevents you from having friendships with people that you wouldn't meet because of our segregation. So all of that together, four years of seeing that commute at the same time of four years of building friendships across races, asking offensive questions to each other, um, learning how to listen, not understanding different cultures and being forced to, to ask questions like, for me personally, what I remember asking is my Latino friends, okay, well, what's the problem with being called uh, illegal alien? Like we, we got a chance to ask each other these questions that, that really helped us um, become like amazing, culturally aware Chicagoans at the age of 18. And, and once we got into the, the real world after that, we were like, wow, this is an experience like a lot of adults don't even have. And so that's what kind of planted the seeds for what would eventually become the Folded Map Project and and Map Twins. So, you know, that was really an experience for me. I learned about our grid map. I, I saw how streets existed on the south side, the same streets existed on the north side, and the friendships. That, that is an incredible beginning, and you took it to, uh, you went to college, you went to Columbia, and you, you got an MBA. And I was curious, you know, you're an artist, you're a visual artist, self-described visual artist, activist. Why an MBA? Because that, to me, is a little unusual. Yeah, it it is. And, and at the time, I thought it was as well, but now that I'm older, it makes sense. Um but I was just interested. I knew that, you know, in, instinctually my whole life I was a creative, but I did have a curiosity about business, about budgets, about, you know, how to um, recognize certain things in, in a variety of sectors. I just had a like a budding curiosity about business in general, um, because I knew in order to have anything that I was thinking about creatively, which at that time, it was a magazine, you know, a print magazine. Um, I knew that it was more than just uh, arts and journalism. It's a publishing 
side to it that is solely business. And so just kind of having that duality of being interested in the print industry and knowing that it's not only arts and writing, but it's business. I, I just wanted to pursue it a little more. And that's why I decided to get an MBA. And <laughs> quite frankly, the only thing that I can say really stuck was the cost of opportunity. <laughs> that is what stuck with me. Being able to measure that in any scenario and and, and make a decision off of it. So that was that was my primary takeaway from my MBA. <laughs> well, so you you got the MBA and you and and even years, you know, uh, have passed since you were in school, you still don't think it was a, a good move, right? It really has helped with some foundational understanding of how things work. Yes, it it really did because I didn't know even with my folded map project that focused on segregation, um, what a potential present-day solution could look by, could look like in our own lives. Um, but I had no idea that my projects afterwards would go deeper into the history of Inglewood, including um, the systemic issues of housing, real estate, and me having an understanding or having that exposure to the cost of opportunity, um, uh, budgets, uh, even a little bit of finance, I was able to immediately understand the systemic predicament that aspiring Black homeowners were in and all of the many ways that wealth has been taken from us. So that MBA kind of gave me the foundational understanding to really dissect um, reports and issues that relate to the Black wealth gap and specific to my home neighborhood, all of the ways in which ultimately we have been stolen from. And so mm -hmm. I was able to comprehend reports, I think, a, a little bit better just because of, of that MBA, even though I felt like, why did I do that? I was interested, but what am I, how am I using it? Um, but it definitely, it, it comes up um, when I'm reading a variety of reports that I might want to uh, breathe new life into. That's wonderful. So tell us a little bit about Inglewood. Um, you went to school, you lived in Inglewood, but you went to school in, um, on the North side, right. Um, in sort of the Lakeview West area in some ways. And you have really focused on lifting up Inglewood. You do some work now in Inglewood as well. So yeah. living there, focusing on, uh, real, stories, if you will, and lifting them up in Inglewood. And what has that been like? Because I think some of the folks who might be listening to the podcast have a very narrow view or understanding of Inglewood, because as you know, um, the 10 o'clock news is not where you're going to get a narrative about any community or anyone. Mm. And it, it really is up to us to tell our stories about our communities. Mm -hmm. um, and, and what have you, what would you like people to know about Inglewood? Yeah, I well one it, it's it's my home neighborhood and and not only to me is it the embodiment of 
how most black neighborhoods on Chicago South Side get treated in the media. Um, it is also literally Chicago's poster child of everything wrong in a neighborhood. Like you're going to hear about Inglewood on the news. And so for me, that's the perfect ingredient to help people connect with how historic racism and segregation has influenced what people think about a neighborhood and also what people think about individuals who live in that neighborhood and what better way to help people learn and understand that by using an example of a neighborhood that unequivocally everyone will be like oh no it's a bad neighborhood okay well did you know this about greater Inglewood did you know why it was this way and so I thought that it was the perfect case study for us to really understand all of the issues that plague a lot of black communities in Chicago, specifically the West side as well. And overall, I think Chicago is an amazing case study for the rest of the country because our segregation is legacy. It literally has not shifted. It's only deepened. And we're kind of the city that taught the rest of the country how to bake it into real estate. <laughs> On top of the fact that we have a long history of being an organizing city and we have been disrupting segregation and mobilizing for civil rights issues. We're such an important city politically and I just wanted to be able to use us as um, the perfect case study to really dissect how historic racism impacts all of our lives today, even white people, <laughs> you know? And we all suffer. Everyone suffers. Everyone suffers. We're, I think I looked at some stats the other day where it said we're the third largest, most segregated city in the country. Um, and I thought, okay, I that I, I knew we were extraordinarily segregated. I often say we are the most segregated in the country, but apparently there's a couple of cities um, that, that are doing a, a you know, even a, a deeper um, job at this than we are. So tell us, explain to us how you came up with the idea for the folded map project. You, you gave us some of the history, the foundation, yeah. right. In terms of the work you were in the community, but yeah. the, the project itself, which began as a photographic study, but it's formalized into a nonprofit organization, a short film, and, and there's a stage adaptation of it. So you're an artist, you're a storyteller. Um, what did you, you know, yeah. how, how did it actually get started? So as I said, it was just a seed of idea um, nagging me since I was in high school. I hadn't even come up with the title yet, but just the concept. I always knew and thought it was interesting, um, especially since I grew up um, and and moved back and lived in Inglewood majority of my adult life. I knew that the streets were the same. I knew, I was like, oh, there's very specific streets that run the entirety of the city, but they look so different. I always had that idea. And I always knew that, oh, you know, I have friends 
that are in the map twin neighborhood of Inglewood that I that I wish, you know, we lived around each other. So just the idea of it was with me my entire life, but it wasn't until the presidential election year of 2016. When Yes, that was a monument for us as well. <laughs> I mean, you we we can all remember, especially if you're a Chicagoan, because of Obama's campaign, how they targeted Chicago. And I had a friend out of the country that knew of Chicago because of our friendship, but they didn't know anything about Chicago outside of what I really shared. But oh my gosh, they were like, Are you okay? I didn't know Chicago was so bad. And and when I had my my wife friends tell me that even when they go out of town, people ask them, do they get shot at? I was like, okay, this 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 presidential campaign is really spinning a horrible narrative of Chicago with the aim to just attack attack Obama and the organizing he's done here. But people really believe this. And and to me, looking back, that's kind of when Chicago's reputation internationally became what it is. Um, I, I was in France doing an artist residency and people in a small French city called Bordeaux, I told them I was from Chicago and they were like, oh, poop, 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 like gunshots. I said, what? this?" <laughs> but I think it, it started um, internationally and for myself in, in 2016. And I just, that, that presidential election year just angered me so much. It angered me into forcing myself, okay, girl, you've been having this idea for so long. It's just sitting in your head and you're not doing anything with it. And you see what's happening in the world, in this country and how people view your city, your project could help people understand it different and it that presidential election year was the catalyst it was literally what motivated me to say okay just just take the pictures of the address pairs just get started that way um but yeah it was because I was angry about the 2016 presidential election year and so did you actually start doing the the photography for it or were you working yeah um, immediately after uh, Trump became our president, I said, I'm about to start taking pictures. I started to figure out the blocks that I wanted to um, photograph, the blocks that I wanted to engage. Um, I literally start working on the project as a result of that presidential election. And what did you find? What did you discover as you started to take the photos? Wow. Well, I had a moment as I was photographing the homes, um, the moment that would lead to me creating map twins, actually including people in the project. Um, And that is one of the things that I discovered because I, I created the project to really serve as a platform for people to understand how history, Chicago's history of segregation and racism has harmed black neighborhoods. That was like really my sole reason for doing the project. (laughs) 
But what I discovered is I was taking photos of the homes on the north side (laughs) and having people ask me, okay, why are you taking pictures of my house? And most of them non-black. I learned while doing the project that um, people do care on the north side. Even though I had lived um, on the north side before, I too still felt like, oh, people on the north side don't care. And what I discovered in doing my project is they do care. It's a lot of people that care, but they don't know how outside of voting um, and most recently protesting, they don't know how to disrupt segregation because segregation literally keeps us apart. And since so many homes have been demolished in neighborhoods on the South side, we don't have strong business corridors. We don't have an influx of restaurants and cool venues like the North side. It really is primarily residential. So if you don't get to meet people or if you're not encouraged to come visit people who live on a side of a city that's predominantly residential, then you won't get to know more about the one or two, you know, attractions or locations or festivals. You you won't really intimately get to know the South Side of Chicago. And so I realized that it's a lot of people who want to know, but are programmed to believe that they'll die if they go to the South Side. Um, It's a lot of people who don't know where to go on the South Side. Like, what are some suggestions? And so that's, that's what I learned. I was like, oh, it's not just outright racism. It's literally the historic racism has created this situation where people who do want to come and learn more, they they don't know. And it's relying on their own social networks to connect them with people who could tell them. But there we go again. Segregation keeps people apart. You, you might not run into um, a diverse social network if you only work here or if you only stay in your neighborhood. So it just showed me how segregation perpetuates segregation. And um, even though Chicagoans disrupted a lot, especially in the arts world, like, oh my gosh, um, it's not widespread. And so that's, that's when I knew I wanted to include or create MAP Twins people actually meeting each other. And I want to hear more about that and and just add in that um, it is in some ways how we have been socialized, right? It is to some degree human nature in that we seek out people that look like ourselves and we have to push ourselves to seek out those differences. And I happen to grow up on the side. I mean, I grew up on the South side um, and I happened to grow up in a family where my brother was in the seminary and in the 70s and 80s, if you were in a seminary and you were, you know, a young black man, you were there by yourself. And so all the people running our house at that point were white yeah. folks, white men, you know, that were folks he met in the seminary. So in my household from a very early age, we had a lot of different 
folks, you know, but that is yeah. an unusual experience. And when I went to high school, I was again, this unusual student who had all these different kinds of experiences. And, and to your point, we really have to um, look for those opportunities because if you are living in a neighborhood um, that is predominantly one race or the other, you're not going to just get them. You have to make those opportunities and you have to be interested enough to extend yourself for those kinds of experiences. And that to me is what makes it all so interesting. God, yes. And how Chicagoans, including myself, have normalized it to the point where we can't even imagine what diversity or integrated neighborhood really looks like. And what let me know that Chicagoans, like lifelong Chicagoans, are just have normalized this is when I had friends who moved away to California, Oakland, San Francisco, and they come back and they're like, oh my God, you would love it. It's so diverse here. And like, you know, the neighborhoods and communities are diverse. And I was like, so what do you mean the neighborhoods are like diverse? Cause I only had the few neighborhoods here as an example. I was like, what, like Hyde Park, Rogers Park, like what, what, what do you mean? And they were like, no, like people live next to each other that are <laughs> different races. And they would laugh at me and they were like, that's so crazy. Look what Chicago has done. You can't even imagine that. Can you? And I'm like, no, <laughs> I can imagine a diverse work environment, a diverse school setting, but na- like even me. And they were like, man, Chicago has done a number on everybody. Yeah, we just we we've normalized it. And I think that's the the other part about having outsiders come to Chicago to at least jolt us into realizing, oh, we are very segregated. Like we're so conditioned to how Chicago is segregated that even when we talk about diversity, it's almost offensive. People think that, oh, are you suggesting we can't have strong black neighborhoods or or that we have to have integration? Like, no, I'm saying we can have it all. And and this is what segregation has done. It, it has made us even think that suggesting diverse neighborhoods or integration is problematic. And it's like, no, we, we should be able to have it all. We're literally a diverse city. And the fact that we only have a few neighborhoods out of 77 that's diverse, that's really pathetic. It's really pathetic. And I think, you know, when we do our work at Morton Group, we are often talking to folks about uh, racial equity and, you know, and they're folks who really want to talk with a DEI approach. And, And we will meet people where they are. Yet we talk about race and we want race to be as present as possible because, as we know, race is still the number one indicator of someone's success in this country. That has not changed. Right. And and so it also then sometimes it's difficult for folks to think about other diversity indicators other than race, because there's, you know, there's economics. Right. There's uh, sexual orientation and gender identity. Um, there's all kinds of ways that people can be diverse, religious, uh, you know, uh, differences, 
folks who are from the disability community, which we really have not done enough oh God, no. on or included, right? Um, in, in a way that is that makes sense. And so diversity takes on more than just being about race. Um, mm-hmm. And that is the one thing that we can see. And so that is what I think we then we go in on, right? Because we can see mm-hmm. that we may not be able to see some of these other indicators. You mentioned uh, MAP Twins. Explain what MAP Twins is. So MAP Twins are the people in my folded MAP project who live on the same street, 15 miles apart, in racially and economically different neighborhoods. So they have the same address or similar address, but they're in racially and economically different neighborhoods that's miles apart, but they meet each other because they technically are neighbors because they live on the same street. It just so happens that it's miles apart. And they are called map twins because literally they're twins on the map and also because they are the individuals that met each other through this project. So the concept, the artistic concept is if you were to fold Chicago's map at its middle point, which is downtown Chicago, the neighborhoods that would touch each other when you fold it um, are the neighborhoods that are racially and economically different. So how do you get a map to fold? You bring people together. So that's what map twins are. All right. So we're going to talk a little bit more about map twins when we come back. We're going to take a short break. You're listening to Gathering Ground and our very special guest, Uh, Tanika Johnson is uh, sharing all kinds of history about the Folded Map Project, and we're back in a moment. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for joining me on Gathering Ground. We want to hear from you. If you have any questions about your work in nonprofits or any of the topics that we've covered here on Gathering Ground, send them on in. Send them to Mary at GatheringGroundPodcast.com. That's Mary at GatheringGroundPodcast, all one word, dot com. We look forward to hearing from you. Well, welcome back to Gathering Ground and our very special guest, Tanika Johnson. Tanika, when we went to our break, we were talking about the Map Twins Project, and I would love to hear some stories, or at least one story, about how participants um, met each other and maybe what they learned from oh, each other. Oh, yes. I, I would say, you know, when I talk about Folded Map, um, you know, I give the excerpts of the Map Twins interviews because these are people who did not know each other prior to meeting each other through the project. Um, They live in racially and economically different neighborhoods. And um, because it's Chicago, have been programmed to believe stereotypes about each other. And so one of the most hilarious things that, you know, I tend to show the more positive snippets of the MAP Twins meeting because each of the each of their interviews I included in an hour long kind of montage of all of them meeting. 
And so some of the map twins became closer than others. Um, all of them keep in touch. But what was really interesting is the body language. And that's why I knew the project had to be more than just photography because I had conducted my first Map Twin interview and I was just doing audio. And because it seemed like, okay, I'm just asking everybody these same five questions separately and together. Like this shouldn't be weird. But when they got in front of each other and met each other for the first time and and answering questions like, what is missing in your neighborhood? What what do you want in your neighborhood? How much did your house cost? How much do you, how much do you pay for rent? It was so interesting to see how you could tell people's varying comfort levels answering that question in front of someone who they knew was going to have a completely different answer. And that's when I knew oh, this has to be video because half of what was interesting was not just what they were saying, but but how they looked at each other when they were hearing it, how uncomfortable some people might have been. Um, one example that I, that I often use when I'm presenting about Folding Map um, are the Map Twins, Bridget and Carmen. Uh, Bridget is uh, a white woman who lived in Rogers Park, and she was telling how much her budget was for looking for her house, and she said she she wanted something under four hundred thousand. And her map twin, black woman named Carmen, who's literally living in the house her parent bought the the two flat that her parents bought in the seventies, <laughs> she visibly like opened her eyes and was and was shocked like like and it's you wouldn't have caught that if it was just audio but when I show that clip everyone laughs and then everyone also sees Bridget feel uncomfortable and try to kind of like comfort Carmen like oh yeah I guess that is a lot of money but I mean, is it is it a lot? It's only a lot compared to... So it just showed how the depth and history and uncomfortability of just answering a simple question like how much your house costs um, put the responsibility and the heaviness of, of segregation and racism onto actual residents. And quite frankly, even though I, I I did this project focusing on race, some stuff I just feel like um, it's not the responsibility of certain individuals. Like, you should not feel, you shouldn't have to feel weird or bad because you can have a budget for a house that technically is kind of normal, like two hundred to 400000 that's 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 just what it is right but because it's chicago bridget the white woman felt felt bad because someone she just met who she really liked um thought that that was like outrageous and then for carmen to feel like what like it just showed how 
how all of this makes normal conversation so awkward, so uncomfortable, and how it's really hard for residents to just navigate a typical adult conversation like that without the history of racism and segregation showing up. And for me, it showed up in their reaction because they felt awkward and you shouldn't feel awkward. That's a very normal conversation everyone should be able to have. But because of racism and segregation, it's not. That's right. That's right. Access to opportunities um, really prevent people in some cases from talking about money because we're socialized that way, right? We're not supposed to talk about money, sex, or politics. Exactly. Is we have to talk particularly about money mm-hmm. because if we don't, that one percent will continue to control all of it. We have to we have to start those conversations when when children are young. I remember a friend of mine uh, who was white saying that she grew up with her father showing her you know, at least once a week, uh, stocks, the stocks in the, in the paper and how they had changed. Well, that wasn't an experience that I had. Uh, and um, those weren't conversations that were going on in my household. Right. Um, that wasn't so, my business growing up. Mind your business. <laughs> that's right. Grown people's business. <laughs> Which is probably why, look, going back to the NBA, that's probably why I wanted the NBA. Like, I want to understand money beyond bank account. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, that's right. Exactly right. Right. And so um, I think we have to normalize all those conversations. They're all related mm-hmm. and it's really important to normalize them. And I think it probably was surprising maybe for Carmen to see that Bridget felt uncomfortable talking about money as well, because there's an assumption too, if you are doing well and, and to your point, that is not an exorbitant amount of money for a house, certainly not in Chicago yet. What I know, because I'm a fundraiser as well, is that people who have money, and I mean people who have a ton of money, are fairly uncomfortable about it as well. And I think people are often surprised by that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But because again, it's how we think about money. You know, money, you know, that um, biblical uh, quote is being the root of all evil. No, it's what we do with the money that gives it value, not money in and of itself. Exactly. And also, kind of to your point, that's also, which is, you know, it's not their fault they have money. Exactly. <laughs> like, it's not their fault. And then also, it's, it's the system's fault, okay? That's also kind of how I feel yeah. about gentrification, you know, yes. um, and how how blaming the gentrifiers, um, how that just keeps the conversation going in the same little circle. Okay. That is not productive. When in actuality... That's really what they have in common because people who gentrify a neighborhood, they're they're going there, the pioneers of the gentrifying, they're going there because that's where they can also afford. So there's a small part of when a community is starting to get gentrified where there's actually a lot you have in common with people that are moving in. But the way we get socialized to think about it is like, oh, shoot, here they come. You know, but they actually can't help that everything that they like ends up popping up in that neighborhood. It's the developers. It's the elected officials. Like, we can't just keep blaming the gentrifiers. We have to redirect our blame, come together, 
and really advocate for the neighborhood instead of only blaming the gentrifiers. It's just like, okay, we're never going to get anywhere. We're never going to get anywhere if we just blame people for having money. Like we have to come together and talk about how the system isn't fair, you know? And you know that, but that's a little bit, um, I, I guess hopeful. And that's kind of what my project um, embodies. And it's what kind of gets pushed back on. <laughs> but, you know, I, I believe that's truly a Chicago way of thinking, being able to um, organize um, across race, across geography, across economics. Um, because some of the best organizing happen in Chicago. And I'm like, yeah, you can still be a very proud uh, black person and still understand that in order to make movements happen, it has to be multiracial. And I love to use Fred Hampton as the example. Like, I mean, come on, y'all. He was a Black Panther. But he had the foresight. He knew, oh, I do need to connect with these poor whites. Because they are kind of going through the same thing. He created Rainbow, the Rainbow Push Coalition. Um, the work they were doing with the Brown Berets. I even joke and tell people the Underground Railroad was a multiracial movement. Like, come on. Like, <laughs> I don't know that. And nor do I think people, you just, I mean, you talked about Rainbow Push. I don't think a lot of folks know that was the origin no, of don't. even the idea of all these folks coming together. It's just something that people grew up with. They don't really even understand that it was about coming together across race. You know, I, I want to just turn up here for a moment and talk a little bit more about the arts piece. You you founded the Inglewood's Art Collective in 2017, and I would love for you to talk a little bit about the role that art plays uh, in opening up dialogue, right, and building community, because, again, you pulled all these pieces together, and and why did you think that was important to do? Why did you think that would be um, something that would actually work. So, you know, growing up and I, and I, and I know because of what you explained, you can identify with this. Um, when you grow up, not only on Chicago South side, but specifically growing up in greater Inglewood, um, I had to learn what people thought about my neighborhood by, um, telling people where I lived <laughs> and, and several things would happen once I shared with people where I lived or where I grew up. Um, either they would be like, Oh, surprised, shocked, or they had questions about, Oh, wow. Is it really bad there? You know, th that would be it my whole life. And what was really interesting to me were the, like, I understood people thinking it's bad because they saw it on the news. But what was really interesting is people being shocked that I was from Greater Inglewood. And so I saw it was two ways that people in my younger age group at the time could take that. Some create, because I've always been a weirdo art kid. I believe everybody who's a creative 
It doesn't matter where you're from, which is why I love the arts, because we all connect on the fact that we were weirdo art kids. Either you were a nerd and you had a really weird interest, but when you meet somebody else with that same interest, you don't really care where they're from. You're like, oh, I love it too. So the arts is where, like, it's the best place to demonstrate um, connecting with people through a shared passion as opposed to just only a racial lens. And so I grew up being a weirdo art kid, but I never thought, oh, I'm unusual in my neighborhood. And so when I would meet people that was surprised I was from Inglewood, I, I learned that, oh, they don't think people like me exist in my neighborhood. They actually just think right. criminals and victims live in my neighborhood. They totally robbed Greater Inglewood and thus Black neighborhoods of diversity. They actually think we're a monolith. And then they think that we're the monolith of whatever the news says. And I was like, oh, they really think the neighborhood is just uh, drugs and gangbangers and, and, and crackheads. Like, that's all they thought. And I'm like, um, no, I know so many weirdo art kids. Like what? And so and family, families who are raising their children there who had the same hopes and dreams that anyone else would have in any other neighborhood. And they can't believe that you you, you seem no. so nice and you you talk, you speak well. And like, that's not a compliment. Like, what are you you're telling me who you think lives in my neighborhood? And that's crazy because my grandmother was, she's the reason we lived in Inglewood and she was an artist. I I just, my, my uncles were artists. My mom was an artist. And I'm just like, I lived in a household that if I, I told them I wanted to play the piano, they, they bought me a piano. And I would tell that story and people were like, in Inglewood? Yes. What? What? I said, y'all, I said, I feel sorry for y'all because you all really just believe this insane narrative. So um, the Inglewood Arts Collective was literally to, was created to push back on this narrative that not only do people think uh, there's only one type of lived experience in, in our neighborhood, but they really didn't even, couldn't imagine like, oh yeah, creative weirdo art kids from greater Inglewood like no we we've it's a lot of us and the Inglewood Arts Collective is literally a collective of uh 11 grown-up weirdo art kids that grew up in Inglewood and the unfortunate thing about it which is why we wanted to create this collective is that we didn't meet each other in Inglewood oh really no and once we we met each other outside of Inglewood, all of us. And we knew that that was also part of the disinvestment in our neighborhood because there was not one single place where we all could have met each other through our artistic interests. And so we said, you know what, we're going to push back. And if we just exist as Inglewood Arts Collective, the name alone will actually challenge what people think about this neighborhood like what arts artists in Inglewood because we had looked it up and and it was nothing um contemporary like it we were well aware of Inglewood's artistic history through Boulevard Arts um 
that was on 55th Street, like we and 59th, we knew about that, but we knew that no one else did. And so we just decided to come together to to help challenge the narrative that you can't be a eclectic art kid from a neighborhood like Inglewood. Like, no, you can. It's it's many. So just tell me how often do you all meet or or what kinds of things? Oh gosh. Um so we are a collective that does activations not only in Inglewood, but we partner with other fellow creatives in other neighborhoods. So we meet constantly. As a matter of fact, we've we don't even hang out. We actually like our meetings are our is is how we hang out because the Inglewood Music Festival is happening Saturday and our collective was the collective that curated the whole arts experience at the Inglewood Music Festival. So we've been meeting constantly um, about that. And that's this Saturday from noon to four. You can come to the Arts Village at Inglewood Music Festival. Uh, We've been working with Alderman Coleman because this is her baby um, and she wanted to really infuse art. And because of her including us, giving us this platform to really show the community uh, how arts is, entertainment which we all know like conceptually but we don't realize (laughs) how much of entertainment is the arts and so she gave us this platform to really just show out and as a result of her wanting us to be a part of this new annual event um Ingwa Arts Collective has met like we meet constantly we're just always in meetings with each other what kinds of things um is the Inglewood Arts Collective working on now Yes. So we have been meeting many times throughout the year for an annual event that happens in Inglewood called the Inglewood Music Festival. Um, It's an amazing free music festival. Uh, This year, uh, Trina, the rapper, Trick Daddy, Do or Die is going to be there. And we essentially curate the artistic experience that attendees have. So we have a whole arts village and and we've been meeting constantly for for that event. And it generally happens in uh, September. So people can look next year. Okay. Yes. So, you know, I want to talk about um, your work with the uh, National Public Housing Museum. You may have noticed over my shoulder, I have uh, something that actually came from the National Public Housing Museum. Um, I love that quote so much uh, that we are the ones we've been waiting for. Mm-hmm. What tell me about the inequity for sale uh, project? Mm-hmm. So inequity for sale, uh, that's my that's my latest baby. That's <laughs> that's a project that has my whole heart right now um, because it is centered around a report that came out in twenty eighteen, literally the same year that um, Folded Map debuted. And the report was called The Plunder of Black Wealth in Chicago. And it put a dollar amount to the money that was stolen from Black Chicagoans through the discriminatory housing practice of land sale contracts in the 50s and 60s. And so this discriminatory housing practice led aspiring Black homeowners to believe that they owned a house but they did not. And so when people are starting to learn about redlining, that explains how 
black people got situated in particular neighborhoods. But land sale contracts and other discriminatory housing practice explains how we were robbed of becoming homeowners. And so this report came out and it was fascinating to me, but I contacted the creators of the report, the researchers, and I asked them, you know, if they had maps. Cause I'm like, okay, where, where, where were these homes? Where were <laughs> And so I befriended one of the researchers. Her name is Amber Hendley. And she provided me with the addresses as well as the map of where the largest concentration of this predatory practice was. And sure enough, of course, as history has shown us, it was concentrated the most on the west side of Chicago. This is the practice that ultimately destroyed the west side of Chicago. But the only other neighborhood outside of the west side that had the largest concentration was Greater Inglewood. And it was this report and her map that answered the question to me that I had been asking all the while I was doing folded map, all the while I was doing community work before that. I wanted to know why is our home ownership rate so low? I grew up seeing people own homes. They were taking care of them. And then all of a sudden, you know, beyond the housing market crash, like before that, people were losing homes and I just never understood. And I'm like, we're doing all of this work to in increase the home ownership rate. I was like, but no one is explaining to me, how did it get so low? It's 30%. How did it get so low? But this report explained it. And what it explained is that Greater Inglewood had the largest concentration outside of the West Side of aspiring black homeowners in the 50s and 60s who had their homes on a land sale contract. So it really means they were renters. And most of them thought they were owners. And the ones who were well aware that they got their home on a land sale contract, they didn't know what that meant, like you could lose the home. And so this project was the missing link for me. Like, it was close to 600 homes in Greater Inglewood that were sold on land sale contracts in the 50s and 60s. And that's documented. So we know it wasn't even required to document that you sold your house on a land sale contract. So we know that that means it was probably more. But the reason that number is so significant is because when you think about housing and if you start, if you want to buy a house, you want to know what the comps are. So you look for just a few other homes in the area where you want to buy to let you know. If you have 600 other homes <laughs> in a neighborhood, that that changes the landscape. And so in order to help people understand how detrimental this was, I literally say, imagine every Black person that was moving into Greater Inglewood in the 50s and 60s with money, a neighborhood that was white, every black person that moved in, white person moved out. But these black people had money and they thought they owned their home and they didn't find out they didn't own their home until they either missed a payment and lost it. 
And so once she gave me the addresses, I started to drive around because I was like, I need to see what these houses look like today. Are they even here? And when I started to see that, oh, they're vacant lots. Oh, they're really dilapidated homes. That's when I understood the financial piece of how that specific history is the reason that Greater Inglewood unlike Auburn Gresham, unlike Chatham, unlike a lot of other black neighborhoods on the South side, why our vacant lot rate is so high, why we have so many vacant homes is because of this history. Because the this history depreciated the value of the entire neighborhood and it began the low home ownership rate because they didn't own their homes. And so my project created landmarks for just 12 of the 600 homes that acknowledge the aspiring Black homeowners who were taken advantage of by saying their names and the dates that they signed what they thought was a mortgage. And so I wanted people to understand that our neighborhood looks this way, not because of whatever everybody is saying about, oh, we don't take care of our homes or, oh, we, no, 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 no is because we were taken advantage of. And if all 600 of those Black people actually owned their homes in the 50s and 60s, imagine what our neighborhood would look like today. But the low home ownership rate is the reason that our schools in Inglewood aren't funded. It's the reason that the tax dollars are the way. It literally is the reason and the beginning of the downward spiral of this neighborhood. And so I just thought that was really important for people to know, especially people who valued the folded map project. Like, oh yeah, yeah, Inglewood is so bad. I've never been there. And your project, folded map, you know, opened my eyes. And, you know, I'm like, okay, well, now that you're paying attention, you need to know this. This this is this is why the neighborhood is struggling with what it's struggling with. It's purely because of housing racism. And that's how I was able to partner with the National Public Housing Museum. Your work sounds absolutely fascinating. All this history you're uncovering. I mean, it's, I'm, I'm just sitting here going, you know, how do we learn more? And how do you, what, what uh, an extraordinary opportunity it is really to uncover all of this information. And for many years, misinformation. Why a neighborhood is in a particular place it's, it's just really extraordinary. And as we, you know, have to wrap up, which I could talk to you for many, many more hours. <laughs> tell us what's coming up. What are you most excited about uh, as you think about the rest of the year into next year? Because it's hard to believe uh, that we're already looking at 2024 for projects. And what I know. Happy New Year. Merry Christmas already. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know. Soon as summer wraps up. Uh Yes, I'm really excited about um, my recent partnership with the City of Chicago's uh, Equity Office of uh, Racial Justice, um, which is led by Chief Equity Officer Candace Moore, um, who I met the same time that I met you. And uh, her and I have kept in touch. And, and of course, it did not surprise me that she was she would become our first equity officer because she's such a, a brilliant like person, uh, lawyer. 
And so she reached out to me wanting to learn more about the Folded Map Action Kit, which is an action kit to help people experience a neighborhood that's racially and economically different, but not as a tourist, as a resident. So it's an action kit that invites people to run errands in a neighborhood that's racially and economically different so that you can understand how different sectors treat neighborhoods differently. And so some of the errands include go buy organic apple, go take out $20 at an ATM, go to a local library or post office so you can see the difference. And so we have partnered to create a special edition action kit through the city of Chicago's Together We Heal initiative. And we have also created disrupting segregation tours with the famous Chicago urban historian Dilla. And we're gonna continue to promote this disrupting segregation um, campaign next year and the rest of this year. So I'm really excited about that. As we wrap up, Let's tell people how they can stay in touch with all of the extraordinary work you're doing and how one might take advantage um, of the tour. Yes. So I live on Instagram. That is the best way to uh, get in touch with me and learn more about my projects. Uh, My handle is Tonika J and my website is tonikaj.com, T-O-N-I-K-A-J.com. And if you want to learn more about the Disrupting Segregation campaign, you can literally Google folded map action kit and it will take you to the city of Chicago's website that has all of the information about the tours. You can even download the action kit as well as learn more about when we're going to be having more tours. So those are the primary ways you can stay connected. So someone could uh, perhaps get the uh, kits and and use them in a classroom or use them with a community group. Oh, definitely, definitely. And actually, Folded Map will be launching its own curriculum for sixth grade to and up. So you can definitely just get in touch with me, and we are making that available for free to all educators uh, because we know the financial burden that they have to resource their classroom. Um, So that's coming up as well. Wonderful. I I absolutely want to make sure we get the word out about that. We will put all of those um, contacts uh, on our website uh, and they'll be part of the release when we, when we um, distribute this episode, it has been incredible talking to you. It's been way too long and uh, definitely want to have, get involved uh, uh, in some other ways in the work that we're doing. I think we have, there's a lot of synergy here and I'm just so happy to hear about everything you're doing. It's really fascinating and wonderful and it is so needed. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being interested, Mary, because I think so much of you. So I'm so honored to have you uh, interview me for this, for this. So thank you. I hope you learned as much as I did from my conversation with Tanika. To find out more about her work, visit her at foldedmapproject.com or on Instagram at Tanika J, T-O-N-I-K-A-J. Visit Morton Group for more information on the work that we do. And you can find all past episodes of Gathering Ground at gatheringgroundpodcast.com. And finally, you can catch my new radio show, Living Out Loud, 
Sundays at 1 p.m. Central on WCPT 820 AM in Chicago or streaming live at heartlandsignal.com backslash WCPT 820. New episodes are available Monday afternoons at Morton Group backslash LOL. Thanks for joining me for another episode of Gathering Ground. I'm Mary Morton. Until next time.